Welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Robert Fonseca. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark, uh, as has been said and pointed out through email and through the announcements this morning. We are starting a new series. Uh, we're going to go through the Gospel of Mark. Um, so I'm excited about that. I hope you are too. And the title of this morning's message is The Hope of a Promise. And as we just sung, when you think of the word hope, you actually think of like, I hope it's going to happen, right? That's what we're thinking. But actually, when we look at the hope in Scripture, we're talking about the hope of something that is assured, almost like the assurance of a promise. As I was thinking of promises and you know, I was thinking, have I kept all my promises to my kids? And I, I meant to pull them this week, but I didn't. That's probably a good thing. I remember one time I had uh, promised my daughter, Alyssa, that um, we would go ice skating when she was young. And uh, thankfully, <laughs> I kept that promise. It was years later, but I always remember, I'm good. I got to take her ice skating. I got to take her ice skating. I don't want her to be like a 30 year old woman with kids. I'm like, hey, do you want to go ice skating with dad? I'm going to keep that promise. And thankfully, I kept it when she was a teenager. But do you think of that sometimes, that you know, people make promises and they don't keep them? And therefore, you no longer trust that person, right? Because they said something and they didn't do it. Unfortunately, that happens quite often in our world. And maybe you, and I'm sure I have, not kept my promise on a number of occasions. But thankfully... As we look at today's text, and as we've been seeing, we have hope in something that's assured, a promise that is assured. And this morning, as we look at the text, we are, as I said, in Mark, and as you're well aware, there's four Gospels, and Mark is, is one that really is going to describe for believers the promise of the coming Messiah and the hope of the coming Messiah. That's going to be the focus of Mark throughout the text. And we might not hit it real hard this morning, but as we go through it over the next months and probably years, if you know how we teach through, through books of the Bible, um, is it echoing? Is that just me? Sounds really loud. I'm sorry. As we go through this, you're going to see Mark, that's really the purpose of Mark's gospel. He's writing to a church probably around the late uh, 60s in the first century, that is going through hard times. And they're trying to cope with the persecution of the early church. And so he's trying to give them hope. So think of that as we go through this book. Unfortunately, uh, the Gospel of Mark doesn't tell us why he wrote it and who he's writing it for. Like, if you know the Gospel of Luke, he says he's writing to Theophilus and trying to uh, strengthen his belief so that he knows what he believes is true. Or in the Gospel of John, at the very end of John, if you remember when we went through it a number of years ago, he was writing so that people would know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Well, there's no preface in the book of Mark. I don't know about you, but I, I read when I read, it's mostly nonfiction. It's, it's, I rarely read fiction. I've told you that a number of times. 
And I'm the type of person, when I read a book, I literally start from page one or a Roman numeral one, depending on what it is, because I want to know. I read the preface. I read all that stuff. Like, who, why is this person writing this book? What is the angle and the purpose of their writing? I even read the thank yous and the acknowledgments. Like, hey, I want to thank the library at such and such college for helping me do this research. Does anybody else read that? Or is that? Thank you. Okay, there's some fellow nerds that read that kind of stuff, right? I'm like, hey, somebody did all this work. I'm going to give them credit by reading that page. But unfortunately, in the Gospel of Mark, we don't have that. So uh, commentators and scholars throughout history have, have studied Mark and try to figure out why did he write this. And it looks like he wrote to the early church, again, as I said, to assure them of the promise of the coming of the Messiah and that everything is going to be okay, that the Lord is with us. And don't we need that hope even today as we go through things such as this pandemic and social unrest and maybe even in your own life things that are going on? You're like, hey, when I became a believer, I thought everything was going to be perfect. Right? That's what I was promised. And we find out that, you know what, life still hits us the ups and downs of life, but the Lord is still with us. And again, this is what I hope you get out of the gospel of Mark as we go through it. And again, I think this was what Mark was aiming for, to give us that comfort and assurance. So let's, with that said, let's look at the gospel of Mark. We're going to read the first 13 verses, and then I'll come back and touch on a few points there for us. So this is what it says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locust and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. And so here we have what many scholars believe is the preface or the introduction to the entire Gospel of Mark. In this section, he's, going, he's explaining what he's going to talk about the rest of the way, and, and hopefully um, I can unpack that a little bit as 
we go through it. And it starts off at the very beginning of verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So right away, he hits the reader and us as a church with the promise of the coming Messiah. And he's saying that this news is good news. That's why it says the beginning of the gospel, right? It's where we get the word good news, uh, the Greek word for that at least. Good news, the, the good news that he's going to give the church begins with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The news of the coming of the coming Messiah. The Messiah was going to be salvation for the people of Israel. At this time, they had been waiting a long time for the promise of the coming hope, the coming Messiah. If you remember uh, back uh, late last year, as we wrapped up the gospel, or not the gospel, uh, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, right? he was prophesying to the people that you guys are going to go through uh, destruction and captivity, but there's coming one that's going to save you, that's going to bring you out of captivity. And in the process, now it's probably been about 400 years or so since that has happened, the nation of Israel is now in a similar captivity, but here in Rome. They have not experienced this promise that Isaiah had given to them, but Mark is going to explain to them how this promise is being realized at the coming of the Messiah. So the Messiah that is coming, this is good news. This is going to be our Savior. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is what Mark is instructing the early church. The one who is coming is going to right every wrong. I mean, even today, right in our own society, we're waiting for somebody to fix everything. Right? Whether it's a world leader, whether it's science, whether it's education, maybe it's you know, somebody in the church. Like, When is somebody going to come and fix our world? Maybe you think of things that way. I know without the hope of Christianity, at least for me, I'm like, no one's coming. Nobody's going to save this world. They might do it temporarily, right? If you understand world history and read throughout history, things can get better, and then they get worse. It's like this repetitive cycle that over and over again, things can get better, and then things can get worse. Nobody is coming to save this world until Christ returns a second time. This is actually just the process of the last days, right, where judgment comes over and over in ways. If you read through the book of Revelation, it talks about that, how there's this cycle of just, you know, this is part of what we're supposed to live through until the Lord comes, and he's going to come and right every wrong. That's why, again, Mark says, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. This is where that good news starts. It's for each and every one of us. It's at the coming of the Messiah. And so the coming of the Messiah, if you remember as we read through um, Isaiah, was going to usher in a time of peace, justice, and prosperity. And as I said, they have yet to experience this. And as I mentioned briefly, isn't that what we all want now? We want peace, justice, and prosperity. I mean, we live and look forward to those things, right? We're working towards those things, even in our own life. As an adult, right, you're working towards, you want peace and prosperity. That's why we go to work. That's why we invest. That's why we save, right? We hope that one day 
I'm going to make it to where I can rest, like in retirement, that I don't have to continue working. We, you know, finally see the fruits of our labor. Again, all of us want this in some sense, peace, justice, and prosperity. Even those of you who are young, right, you have the hope that one day you're going to make it. One day I'm going to get married and that's going to be the greatest thing. One day I'm going to have kids and that's going to be the greatest thing. One day I'm going to land that job and it's going to be the greatest thing. One day I'm going to retire and it's going to be the greatest thing. There's always this hope of something coming that keeps us going. And so this was just the same for the people at this time. They're looking for that peace and prosperity to come through the promised Messiah. And this was the good news that they've been waiting for. Mark continues on with this good news and says in verses 2 and 3, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, he's letting them know that this good news that has come or about to come was the news that we were told about from back in the day, so to speak. The prophets of the Old Testament told people that one day Messiah would come And so Mark is refreshing their memories. Don't you remember this promise? That this was told to us, to our ancestors, to our parents, and maybe even as they were growing up, their parents told them of the coming Messiah. And so Mark is saying this was told for us a long time ago. And so... He continues on. And so just something, let me say something first about this prophecy. So this prophecy that's given, as you see, he he accredits it to Isaiah the prophet. And part of it is from Isaiah. If you're like me when you study, you're like, okay, I want to find out where that is. And you'll look forever and ever to find that first part in the prophet Isaiah because it's not there. So what is the author doing? The prophecy really is a conflation of, of two different prophecies about the Messiah. And New Testament writers will do this very often. They'll conflate prophecies or or give you, they'll mix up two or three sometimes. And some um, commentators believe that this is actually three different prophecies rolled up into one. And New Testament writers did this for a number of reasons. We don't really know why, but there's been a few suggestions. One, One suggestion is that, hey, sometimes they put these two prophecies together and give it to the, the, maybe the more, the more known prophet. They attribute it to him. Or they conflate these and, and say, you know what, this other prophet really explains better what this prophet said. And many believe that's what's happening here, is that Isaiah's prophecy, which is the last half of, chapter, of verse 3, explains Malachi's prophecy, which is the other one, in verse 2. So it gives it a better understanding We don't write like that nowadays, but that was a different time, and that's how they wrote. And you'll see that throughout the New Testament. So just be aware of that. I just wanted to make you aware of that. So here's a prophecy. Again, Mark is saying, hey, we were told about this a long time ago. This is what we've been waiting for. And and as I was thinking, don't we too need to be reminded of promises that we were told about before to get us excited again? You know, hey, don't forget, we're going to do this. Don't forget, we're going to do that. Because if something doesn't happen right away, we tend to lose hope. We tend to forget about it. So we constantly have to be reminded that things are going to work out. 
right? Maybe, you know, you're going through something at work or school, and you're like, why am I doing this? Oh, yeah, because in the end, it's going to be worth it, right? It kind of gives you that hope that it is all worth it. And so here, Mark is telling the early church that as well, that, hey, this was told to us a long time ago, and it's coming to pass. And so now he, he kind of goes from there and explains a little bit about the fulfillment of this prophecy in John the Baptist. And that's in verses 4 through 8. So we, let me read the prophecy again. He says in verse 2, Behold, I send, you, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. And that's actually from Malachi. And then he quotes Isaiah, The voice of one crying in the wilderness Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So that is the prophecy given about the coming Messiah. And then John is the fulfillment of that prophecy in verse 4. And so now he goes on to that. It says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. Here's that voice in the wilderness. And what is John doing? He's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John was preparing the way for the Messiah to come, just as was prophesied in Malachi and in Isaiah, as given by Mark here. And so, how does John prepare the way for the Messiah to come? Well, in verse 4, it says again, He came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then verse 5 tells us that everybody was coming out to be baptized. So we see John proclaiming that they need to repent for their sins in order to receive the Lord. And that's really the, the first step to receive the Lord, isn't it? Even in our own lives, that we need to repent of our sins. John's message of repentance is no different than what's been proclaimed throughout the Old Testament and even now. And let me give you a few examples. Uh, going back to Isaiah, in chapter 1 of Isaiah... You don't have to turn there, but there's going to be some verses that come up. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. John's message is in line with what the prophets were saying of old. This is what Isaiah said. He said this. This was at the very beginning of the book of Isaiah, and I know you guys all remember it so vividly when we studied Isaiah like six years ago. That's when I think we started it. It says this. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptedly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Isaiah, at the very beginning of his prophecy, explains why all these judgments were coming, because the people have forsaken their God. And again, John is telling out his people, hey, you guys need to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins because you have forsaken God. And then in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, this is the remedy for it. Look at what he says. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my, seat, from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. 
Reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. The remedy was repentance, and true repentance brings about a changed life, which means you would go out and do these things as Isaiah is talking about, because it was different from what the nation of Israel, especially the leaders, were doing. They were corrupt leaders. The whole point of that, again, is John's message is in line with the prophets of old, that it's repentance is what gets you right with God. The first step to getting right with God is repentance. One more verse just to emphasize this is in the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, where Joel writes, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart, heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Again, just another verse emphasizing the repentance that was preached by the Old Testament prophets is now being preached by John. And so again, John is preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this message of repentance as a prerequisite of coming to the Messiah is the message seen in the New Testament as well. It is consistent throughout the Scriptures. Let me give you one example. Example in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 30. I think it's the Apostle Paul. He says this, Therefore, having looked, overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. That is the message to coming to the Lord is repent because we've all fallen away from the Lord. We've all gone astray. We've all gone our own way, Scripture tells us. And so this is the message that the John the Baptist was preaching. It's a baptism of repentance. And it's not just, well, I've been baptized. This is then. And so that means I'm, I'm saved, right, or I'm right with God. No, that's just the first step. It's just symbolic of your washing of your sins. It's really a matter of the heart. And so this was the first step, right? You're repenting of your sins. If you say you believe in God, if you're going to come to the Lord, you need to repent or turn from your ways and turn towards God. And so this is how John was preparing the way for the coming of Messiah. The second part of John's message was to proclaim who the Messiah was. As it says in verse 3 again, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. He was not only going to get you right in the sight of God or prepare you for him, but he wanted, also wanted you to know who the Lord was. And if you drop down in Mark chapter 1, look at verse 7 really seven and eight, and here John is explaining who the Messiah was. He says this, And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here John is telling you about the Messiah, that he is different than John himself, right? He is greater than me or mightier than I. He's making this distinction. 
that it's not about him, but it's about the one that he's proclaiming to come. He says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, which, by the way, was the job of a slave in the first century. They were the ones to untie sandals of guests when they came into a home. As John is saying, I'm not even good enough to do that in comparison to who the Messiah is. Not only that, he says his ministry is completely different. I baptize with water, which is symbolic, but he is going to baptize you with a true baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Something totally different. A transformation is what he is going to come preaching. And we'll see that play out throughout the Gospel of Mark. And again, as I mentioned, this is like the introduction. So all these things that John, or excuse me, that Mark is talking about here, we're going to see play out through the next 15 chapters of the Gospel of Mark. How Jesus does all this, calling people to repentance and coming to himself. And then as we continue on here, we see that the coming, the promise of the Messiah, right, is that, I want to point out this, is this Messiah is actually God incarnate. That's what's being proclaimed in verses 7 through 11. We get these little glimpses of this person coming. Mark is real secret a lot of times, as you'll see when we go through this. You'll hear stories where Jesus says, don't tell anybody who I am. There's this sense of secrecy throughout the Gospel of Mark. Even in here, in these after verse 1, it says someone is coming. I'm preparing the way for somebody who is mightier than I. There's this little sense of secrecy throughout Mark's Gospel. And so here he gives us a hint to the type of person that is going to come. And as I said, it's actually God himself in the flesh. Again, each of the prophecies that we read here in verses 2 through 3, these are allusions when you go back and read them in context that the Messiah that is to come is actually God himself who's coming. That's who it's talking about. It is God who is going to be, whose way is prepared as you read the prophecy in Malachi and Isaiah. And this baptism of the Holy Spirit, we're told in the Old Testament and specifically in Isaiah 44.3, says this, For I will pour out water on the thirsty and streams on the dry ground, and I, this is the Lord speaking, I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. It is God Himself who pours His Spirit out on His people. And even in the titles that are given here, the Son of God and then later, Uh, My beloved son. These are divine titles showing this distinct relationship that the son and the father have. Again, just little hints, secret hints by Mark in his gospel of this coming Messiah. Another thing that I want to point out this morning is, as I've been alluding to already, is that the Messiah's purpose for coming is... He came to restore his people back to himself. And you see this in verses 9 through 13. As we're introduced now to the Messiah, look at what it says. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So at the very beginning here, we see that Jesus coming 
to restore people back to God, one of the reasons he does, how he does this is by identifying with his people, and that's why Jesus was baptized. Jesus didn't have sin. He didn't need to be baptized. But he says in another gospel that these things he is doing to fulfill all righteousness. He is identifying with his people. He is coming in the form of a man and submitting to baptism. He submits to human parents. He submits to the Jewish law to, to identify with us, to identify with his people. And he's coming to take our place and to return or restore us back to God. Again, he came to stand in our place. And you'll see this throughout Mark as well. And, and actually, let me point this out. Let's, let's read on. Uh, in verse 10, it says, Immediately coming out of the water, he saw the heavens open, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, saying, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. And then it says, Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts. And the angels were ministering to him. Here we see this hint, and you'll see it, maybe we'll see it throughout the Gospel of Mark. This, this hint of Jesus replacing the nation of Israel and going through and doing the same thing Israel was supposed to do and failing. For example, who went into the wilderness for 40 years before going into the promised land? It was the nation Israel. That number 40 is very significant in, in Scripture, right? You remember Moses and Elijah were separated for ministry 40 days before they went into a ministry. And here you see Jesus being separated for 40 days, but him in some sense going through a second exodus. The nation of Israel failed in the wilderness. Remember, God destroyed all of them. And it wasn't only Joshua and Moses and the younger generation that were allowed to go into the promised land. But here Jesus does what? He defeats Satan. We know that from other scriptures or other gospels. He goes in there, defeats Satan, and then comes out victoriously. You see this second exodus taking place in Jesus. Jesus is Israel. He is God's son. And he will eventually lead his people to the promised land, which is first and foremost, as I mentioned at the beginning of this, restoring his people to God. That is the promised land, being restored to God. And then eventually, at the second coming, we will have everlasting peace, everlasting justice, and everlasting prosperity where the promises of God are fully consummated. Here we see them at, at the coming of Jesus beginning to be realized, but then they will be fully consummated when Christ comes and takes us literally into the promised land. And so this is the opening of the Gospel of Mark. And so Mark's message, as I mentioned at the start of his Gospel, is inviting the reader to come to the promised Messiah. He was reminding his people, the promised Messiah is coming. Let's trust him. And that same message is true for each and every one of us today. He invites us to come to the Messiah who has come to us. And so how do we prepare ourselves to be restored to God? And there's just three points of application I want to make 
as we close this morning. So how do we prepare ourselves to be restored to God? Number one is this, as is, as is said in the first chapter here, repent of our sins. In order for any person to be restored to God, you must repent of your sins. You cannot say, well, I believe in God. That means I'm restored to God. No, if you believe in God, then you will do what God says. And one thing that you would do is repent of your sins. You cannot continue to live in your sins and say that you believe in God. So each and every one of us that as a believer, we had that moment in our life where we repented of our sins and we came to God. Now, we continue to sin on a daily basis, but we've acknowledged that we're sinning. That's the difference. We don't continue to live in our sin in defiance and still say that I believe in God. This is what John was doing. He was preparing the way, saying, in order for you to be right with the Lord, you need to repent of your sins. And so that's first and foremost. And I ask each and every one of you this morning, have you repented of your sins? Have you turned from your old ways and set out on a new course by the power of the Holy Spirit to follow God? That's something only you can answer this morning. I can't answer that for you. Your parents can't answer that for you. Your husband or wife can't answer that for you. Your kids can't answer that for you. Only you can answer that. Have you repented of your sins? Have you symbolically gone out and been baptized? You know, one of the things about baptism, we have it, that's, it's just symbolically saying, I've identified with the work of Christ, and I'm dying to myself and rising up new. And so we look forward to doing that with each and every person that desires to do that. How do we prepare ourselves to be restored to God? Number two is acknowledge that we cannot fulfill the law of God. Acknowledge that we cannot fulfill the law of God. Again, as Jesus came, he took the place of men and women. He took the place of the nation. He was baptized. He was tempted. He took their place. And as we see, and as you know in the Gospel of Mark, he takes our place on the cross as well, suffers for us, takes our sin upon himself and suffers and dies on the cross. Because none of us could do that for ourselves. None of us can restore ourselves to God. We can't be good enough. We can't be righteous enough. We can't sin less to be right with God. There's nothing we can do to get ourselves right with God except to acknowledge that we can't be right with God and trust in the work of salvation, which is the third point, accepting the Messiah's work of salvation. That's how we are right with God. We're saying, I can't do it, but I believe what Jesus has done and I trust in him, and I'm going to follow him because I've repented of my sins. That's how we prepare ourselves to be restored by God. And guess what? If that's what you've done, then you're restored to God. And in one sense, you do experience peace, prosperity, and justice from God. And one day you'll experience that full consummation of that. And we look forward to that day. That's the true hope of the believer that one day that is going to happen. And that's why we can suffer through this world. We can suffer through all the things that happen, happens in our lives because we know one day all rights are going to, or all wrongs are going to be right. All sin is going to be abolished. All suffering, pain, 
is all gone because of what Christ has done. That's why the Apostle Paul says that we do not mourn as those who have no hope, right? When people die and they have no hope of what's going to happen to their loved ones, they, they just feel depressed and lost and they maybe comfort themselves by saying, well, they're in a better place now and they're watching over me and, you know, they go to, you know... I don't know, spiritists to try to talk to them and and make themselves feel better because they have no true hope. But we don't mourn that way. So when we lose somebody, we mourn because we miss them. But you know what? We're going to see them again. They're with the Lord. That is just so awesome. I know that because of what he has done, not because of anything I have done. And that is our hope. The sad reality is that there are some that are hearing this message and maybe even have heard this message before who hear it, but they don't truly believe it. So what happens to them? Well, they will suffer the penalty for their own sins. Since they don't allow the Lord to do it for them, they themselves will suffer eternal punishment from the Lord because they refused to listen to the Lord. They refused to receive the promise of this Messiah. And I pray that that's none of you this morning that are listening, that you truly know the Lord as your Messiah. And if you don't, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. So as I close in prayer this morning, um, and you want to do that, I would encourage you to come and see one of the elders, me or John or Jared or uh, John the elder. I'll leave them to fight about which one that is. Um, one of the pastors, and let us pray with you. Let us explain to you what salvation means. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your son. Not only that he came to this world, but that he came to take our place. He came for our healing. He came to restore us back to you. And we're so thankful for that, Lord. And I pray that everyone in this room, in their own personal life, has acknowledged that. That they've acknowledged that they could do nothing to restore themselves to you. And they have believed and trusted in Christ for their salvation. And for those this morning, Lord God, who maybe have never done that, And who are now realizing that, you know what, without the Lord, that they are hopelessly lost. I pray that you would move upon their hearts, that you would bring conviction to them, and that today would be the day of salvation for them. And Lord God, for those who are continually denying that, I pray that, Lord God, that you would continually chase after them, that you would not let them rest that you would not let them sleep, that they would know there's something wrong and that you would not relent until they come to you, Lord God. We thank you that you're a loving God and that you would do that for them. We thank you that you've done that for us and that you've given us a true and living hope. And we look forward to that day when we will meet you and stand before you And we hear those awesome words that says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We thank you for that, Lord. And pray all this in your name. Amen.
Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.